Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 330 Quantifying Mindfulness. We're joined again by contemplative neuroscientist David Vago and philosopher practitioner Jake Davis to conclude our conversation on the scientific investigation of mindfulness and enlightenment. This is part two of a two-part series. As I understand it, then the way that you all are approaching it, and certainly the way, David, that you've been approaching it in your research, is to start kind of narrow with a particular, you know, tradition or a particular methodology or particular, you know, set of ideas about what enlightenment is and, and explore those claims and, and, and sort of investigate them empirically and see what what's actually there in terms of a very specific notion uh, and then kind of going from there. Is that is that an accurate way of describing it? Yeah. So we, we sort of approached this a little bit in our paper. We talked about, well, we sort of went in reverse. I talked about the experience of cessation. And this gets a lot of people excited when we talk about cessation. Um, Which is ironic in a way. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think some practitioners out there talk about, uh, you know, niroda, um, you know, in, in very contemporary settings. Um, well, for example, Shinzen Young talks about gone um, in two ways. One as a little g and one gone as a big g. And little g is essentially, you know, having an object uh, noting in, in a noting and labeling type of practice. You can um, note that an object has, has arised um, in your phenomenal field of consciousness. And you can note that it disappears um, when it's gone. That would be gone with a little g, um, but gone with a big g would be when sort of all space and time drop out, and you are experiencing what you know, he refers to as big, big gone or cessation. Now, this has been um, debated whether or not it's truly uh, a real experience of cessation, as it's described in the in say Mahasi tradition. And then we, we went back to talk about how it's described from the Mahasi tradition. And that's where Jake really critically examined how it really was described from that um, contextual um, soteriological uh, viewpoint. There's a siren that goes off at noon. Maybe that, that, that uh, means that we should, we're talking about something that's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. 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 Yeah, I, I wanted to hear. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it, we had 2,000 words. It was an opinion piece. And so I wouldn't say it, in any way it was a thoroughgoing analysis of the Masi you know, um, notion of cessation. Um, and there's a, there's a lot more to be said on many different angles. One is just that, you know, as in many traditional presentations, the notion of awakening in that context and cessation in particular is very much tied to an understanding of rebirth and the end of rebirth and things like this. Um, and we weren't doing that in the paper. We were doing it in a phenom phenomenological sense and then wondering could this phenomenal experience, kind of experiential perspective, be traced scientifically or not. Um, and I think, you know, the, some of the criticisms we've got, as I say, I'm we're both really excited that, that's what, that it has generated criticism because I think this kind of critical thinking together is crucial. 
to the long-term sustainability of the field of contemplative science and then actually to the long-term sustainability of uh, whatever value these teachings have in our culture. I think thinking critically about it is extremely important to its long-term welfare. So that said, um, one of the critiques that we've got is that, look, you can't divorce even this, this sort of experience from those larger cultural contexts and go trace it scientifically. And I guess at that level, maybe I just disagree. I think that people do um, certainly have ideas about the causal effects of these kinds of experiences and different ideas in different traditional contexts. But nonetheless, it may be possible, they may agree that um, certain experiences do constitute a kind of awakening, maybe something like stream entry, a first level of awakening or something like that. They might, there might be enough agreement about what constitutes that, that then we can have a different discussion about what the causal effects are of that or not. But that we can talk about the experience itself separate from those and then investigate that neuroscientifically. Um, and, you know, that's a question, whether that's possible or not. I think Dave and I have a bet on one side about that, and, and that's the way these debates go. What, what's the bet? Uh, maybe that's all I have at the moment. I oh, mean, that, that we can, that there yeah. is something, there is something, um, there's enough of a coherence and enough of a convergence on what people would take within a specific cultural tradition, would take to be uh, an experience of stream entry, that we can then causal effects of that are on rebirth or not, or so on, but that that can be a separate discussion and that that's not constitutive of what the experience is, that the experience has, has an identity separate from those um, ideas about what it causes. Does that make, is that clear? Yeah, I, 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 I um, and we're on, we're on the same page here. It probably would be nice to have uh, uh, someone like Evan on, uh, talking with us at this point, just because he offers a sort of a very differing different opinion about this it. This is uh, Evan Thompson, who's one of your, um, I guess, one of one of your mentors. Yeah, really. He has been um, uh, sort of um, a guiding force or more of a moral compass for us all <laughs> um, in this I'm field. Sure I appreciate that description. <laughs> yeah, um, which is great. I, I, and and that's, that, that's really important to have someone like that. And he's, um, you know, we have these dialogues a lot on Facebook, which come out very spontaneously. And it's, it's wonderful to see how we can have these really some of the best dialogue I think in the field sometimes happens just on a on a whim from somebody's Facebook post. Interesting. Um, yeah. So which also maybe even speaks to the the where our contemporary movement is. Um, where we're moving towards, I know how humans connect um, at the level of the internet. Um, you know, Buddhist geeks itself is doing is has a virtual sangha. Um, you know, that, that's amazing. Um, so I think one of the most important things about this emerging field is that it's still emerging. Um, you know, thousands of years passed between, you know, the different, you know, wheels of, of turning uh, the Dharma wheel, right? So uh, each turning of the wheel was you know uh, a long period of time between each turning. Um, some some people even consider this the fourth turning, that this this whole movement is really uh, a new way of 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 the Dharma being expressed in in a more contemporary way. So it's going to involve a framework that fits into a contemporary setting, and it's not the same as it used to be. You know, certainly don't. It's not. A, it's certainly not a monastic setting for most people. 
a lot of people are getting these techniques um, at their doctor or, or just going to, uh, you know, a Dharma talk here by this person or um, you getting some sort of online chat or maybe they're listening to this and they're getting some sort of insight out of it. I don't know, but it's not the same framework that the Buddhist uh, models are used to. And, and I say Buddhist models with an S because, as Jake was saying, there's a lot of different traditions that we're referring to. A lot of different schools of Buddhism. I often uh, sometimes forget to make that clear, but and lump it all into one. Um, but uh, but I guess my point is here that you know there may be some growing pains as we go through this fourth turning. Um, Ken Wilber certainly likes to think of it as a fourth turning, and some of those growing pains means trying to figure out what these states are that we're experiencing phenomenologically as we do these practices. For the long-term people, it may not happen in eight weeks. Um, and, in, and in many cases, as we know, some of the main issues in our field is that the um, interventions for clinical um, problems, such as depression or anxiety, sometimes or often do not even don't, don't even use meditation. They just have this sort of orientation towards one's thoughts that is sort of one part of the spectrum of, of um some of the, the uh, experiences that you would have doing um, participating fully in, in, in the Dharma. So everything from just an orientation to, to one's thoughts to actually sitting formally for a long period of time um, to a long-term practice and even in a monastic setting has some sort of spectrum of experience. And the common factors or the common threads are the actual meditation practices. Um, so we can explore those and say what phenomena are consistently experienced when you do these practices, whether it's, you know, in an eight-week MBSR course or whether it's in a monastic setting, we want to know, are you experiencing something that people are calling stream entry and what does it look like? What does it feel like? And how do we probe those experiences? Maybe I could add a couple of things to that. Great. You know, it, I, my own take on some of this is that there is even just in you know a moment of really paying attention in a gentle curious way uh, um, equanimous way to what's happening in our present experience there's the seed of kind of all of the buddhist teachings and so part of the critique i think um David was talking about this idea of the fourth turning of the wheel and the adaptation, and I think there is inevitably going to be adaptation. Every time the Buddhist teachings have moved into a new context, there's been all sorts of adaptations. I think one critique or one worry, legitimate worry, is that there's nothing the same, that there's no continuity, and that there's nothing really timeless uh, about these teachings that is being carried through those. My own take is that there is, that there are some aspects that are really um, there, and very much the same for any human being in virtue of the way that human beings and human psychology and human experience is constructed. So um, one of those things that I think is constant is that there's a way in which the aspects of discipline, you know, Dave was mentioning the monastic kinds of life, um, and all the way through enlightenment experiences are really, do, there is a continuity. and just in virtue of the way human beings are, to the degree we're really paying attention in what I'm thinking of as a mindful way, 
all of that is contained. On the one hand, to the degree we're really cultivating that, it will lead to certain experiences, and it's a testable question whether it leads to convergent experiences, whether people who are practicing in these same ways do uh, report the same kinds of experiences when these are practiced at a kind of depth and continuity and thoroughness. Um, and on, a, on another level, I also think um, that to the degree we're really paying attention to what it's like to be motivated, motivated in different ways, to what it's like to be motivated by hatred or by greed versus what it's like to be motivated by um, equanimity or by compassion, that any human being will know which is a better way to be and will be able to discern which ways of living are wise, which ways of being motivated are wise. And to the degree that's true, I think it has implications for ethics. It may be that it has the implication that monasticism is not just a relic of the past, that in fact monastic ways of life are a really important aspect of these teachings. And, and you know, although the... Um, the current delivery is very secularized and divorced from a lot of those contexts. I think it may actually contain a seed of a lot of radical things. On the one hand, the, the radical kind of freedom that's possible with the sort of experiences that get referred to as enlightenment in different contexts. And on the other hand, the radical kind of uh, differences in lifestyle. So I think of these teachings as a real challenge to our current values as much as it, it also affirms some central aspects of things that we already value. Okay, interesting, interesting. I, I didn't, I didn't see the, uh, I didn't see the monastic challenge coming, and that's a, that's an interesting one, especially because you spent some time um, living in that in that way. And I think there's, you know, there's one debate um, which you know we've been exploring a lot on Buddhist geeks, which is, you know, it, are those conditions a requirement for certain kinds of experiences, or are they, in mm -hmm. some sense, um, um, assumed to be requirements because that's the way it's been done? Um, and then I think there's another question which you raised, which is almost, almost entirely different, which is, you know, um, how does living in a particular way, you know, with a, a particular lifestyle affect your, your mind, you know, and not even in terms of experiencing certain kinds of experiences like cessation or whatever, but just how does that affect your experience as a human being? And, you know, what, what sort of things come out of that that, that are... Um, you know, kind of unique. And the other way around too, how does your, how does your being motivated in certain ways, in a really pure way, how does that manifest in a life? And I think in your lifestyle choices. So it might just be that, um, and I'm not sort of asserting this, I think it's an interesting question and it ought to be the kind of questions that we start to take on, these questions about how does ethical behavior manifest when people are motivated by different motivations. So how does ethical behavior manifest when we're motivated by greed? And how does behavior manifest when we're motivated by called the, the divine abidings by equanimity and compassion and I think it seems to me an open question well maybe if we're really motivated in these pure ways it would often different people are in different conditions you know but um, when people have the right conditions it might often manifest in the choice to live monastic lifestyles if those institutions were there so for me it's actually less a question about what's possible experientially I kind of think that um, maybe all of the, a lot, a huge amount of the value of meditation practice is available in a lay life. What actually strikes me more is for the long-term um, benefit of multiple people. So, um, you know, it may be that the model of teaching, of lay teachers teaching on a Donna basis is not very sustainable. That strikes me as quite plausible, actually, that having to sustain a house and so on um, as a lay teacher is really hard, not just on the teacher, and people don't have a lot of security who are doing that often, 
but also hard on the community in the sense that there's a lot of um, finances that are necessary just to sustain that kind of lifestyle. And secondly, that a huge number of people, you have to be running huge numbers of people through meditation centers to do that. To me, the, actually the value, a lot of the value of monasticism is providing the economic conditions of living really frugally so that you can have teacher-student relationships that are one-on-one -on -one and sustained over years and decades. That seems to me the long-term value for the sustaining of the value of these teachings um, that monasticism brings most centrally. Yeah, and that, and that, that it brings up a critical point and sort of a, a big hole in this field is having the ability to track students' progress without having it, the student-teacher relationship being cultivated for long, long periods of time, longer than eight weeks even. I mean, the eight-week program is really become sort of a model <laughs> program, and that's it. See you later. Good luck. You know, yeah. have fun. You know, and then we sort of leave people to their, to their doings, and they have, you know, they may have questions. They may have troubles. How do you know what's going to happen to them afterwards? We don't. And I think as we the field continues, I think the teachers and as scientists, we're going to have the responsibility for tracking people's progress um, beyond eight weeks and um, looking at not just the biology or the neuroscience of people's uh, neuroplastic changes over time, which I think is critical, but the behavior. Uh, and, you know, what Jake has been emphasizing is the ethics. And we know that, you know, the ethics are actually uh, often uh, undervalued in a lot of these um, contemporary settings where we focus mostly on attention and emotion regulation as sort of a performance enhancement. Um, again, going back to the psychotechnology and the benefits of using mindfulness in this way. But the ethical component contributing to skills like empathy, theory of mind, um, we know that that may be the foundation for transforming some of the maladaptive habits and dispositions that we, um, that we all have. Um, and whether they're implicit or explicit, uh, these sort of ethical components um, are, are certainly necessary for cultivating really important things for, for, for being a flourishing human being. Cultivating love, patience, tolerance, forgiveness, humility, all these types of things lead to ethical behavior, which we know, uh, again, are sort of the foundation for uh, creating a, a, a sustainable, happy human being. And not to mention a, a human society. And a society, right. exactly. You know, I, I, I worry a little bit about uh, um, what Trunkbo referred to as uh, um, spiritual materialism. And mm -hmm. this idea of wanting to be the all-compassionate, mindful, enlightened human being. And claiming to be that is like wearing something on your chest saying, look how enlightened I am. I'm so special. <laughs> You know, and people, you know, are then <laughs> sitting down to practice to reach that state. You know, there, it reminds me of this cartoon where you see these two people meditating next to each other, and and one of them's like, ah, I I reach enlightenment first <laughs> in your dust, you eat my dust. You know, it's like, see you later. <laughs> now, and that becomes yeah. sort of a competitive thing that who's going to experience stream entry first, and then how do we know that they're really experiencing stream entry? Um, we don't even know what stream entry really is. So right, um, right. we need to better qualify these things in sort of objective ways. And that's what we're really just trying to do. I love that you bring that up because, you know, um, and this is maybe a question for you both, because if you guys are, you know, successful or your colleagues are successful at 
seeing certain patterns, you know, biological markers, behavioral markers, etc., you know, and calling that, you know, whatever, this is a particular form of enlightenment, um, you know, then, you know, in some sense, you're opening the door for competitive enlightenment, you know, for, <laughs> in a way that, that, and, and, and what I would say is like, I hear that, that, that perspective, um, you know, okay. that it can sure. be of limited use to be like, I'm the most enlightened person, but, but if you look at any other field where you can quantify, you know, people's skills, um, there is competition. And, you know, Michael Jordan didn't need to be like, I'm the best basketball player in the world and have a huge ego about it. He may have. I don't know. I didn't know him personally. But I'm sure there are a lot of people that are quite humble and are still the best at whatever they do. That's so, true. And that, you, know, that you guys are opening the door to this yeah. you know, in some ways. Right. And Michael Jordan's a good example because he, he showed his skill through performance. Um, you know, and so if yeah. you are and that's behavior. You know, and if you're a real enlightened person, maybe you are just much more humble and, um, you know, loving and pro-social. And we can start to look at that from a behavioral point of view. But, you know, and, and I think you bring up one of the most other important critiques of this type of, of science is creating maps. Is there a benefit to creating a map? And, you know, you go back and Jake, you, I would love to hear your comments on this. You know, what were the historical sort of... Um, well, first of all, were there maps created for the teachers to, to sort of map the progress of their students or not? And it seems like there are some opinions about whether or not some of the you know, original lineage holders had some form of a map to, 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 to help navigate uh, and identify markers of progress by the students. Uh, well, the answer to that is yes, but um, to say a little bit more, um, you know, it's tough to know actually in any detail, very far back, I do. It's very clear that Mahasi Seara, you know, was living in, I guess, now the last century. But um, his tradition, you know, certainly did formulate the kind of maps that you're talking about in phenomenological and behavioral terms, markers of progress along a path. Um, it wasn't designed to, or set up to be amenable to, say, neuroscientific investigation in the way that maybe some more modern um, teachers even are, are thinking of just because they have this scientific worldview um, in a different way. Um, I do think that this idea of spiritual materialism is really important to bring out and uh, to, for us all to be careful of in ourselves. I mean, you know, it, it needn't stop at stream entry either. Somebody could have a stream entry experience and then be getting materialistic about the final final enlightenment, right? But I actually do think there's a way in which fully embodying these practices itself purifies that kind of a motivation for the reason that I was saying. To the degree somebody's really feeling what it's like to be motivated by greed versus what it's like to be motivated by equanimity, I think that they can feel the difference for themselves and the one is just more painful than the other. To the degree we're really feeling it fully, we can't bear it. And so in a certain way, the antidote to... Um, spiritual materialism about mindfulness is mindfulness, but we all need to sort of live that practice. And I do think that part of what I was interested in bringing out, talking about the E-word, is to really bring out the ways in which this is not just an instrumental behavioral intervention for pain management and so on, which isn't in any way a critique, because I think that the seed of not just relief of reactivity to pain, but also 
the relief of the kind of um, reactivity that leads us to be spiritual materialists, the seed of all that goodness, of all that wisdom, is right there in applying mindfulness in a certain way. To the degree we can do that in a continuous and thorough and pervasive way in our lives, we can bring, we can cultivate that kind of being wise. Great. Um, I, I would add to another antidote, Jake, and I'd, I'd be curious to see what you think. I think one other antidote is not confusing third-person descriptions of patterns over time with the first-person experience of either being, you know, uh, having hubris around whatever you know you think you've achieved versus being humble i mean there's there's a difference in describing some sort of territory from the outside like a researcher might and and you know from the inside being like oh i'm so special because i've experienced this <laughs> hmm. could you say a little bit more about how that third person and first person there's certainly a difference between third person first person how does that apply to the i think you're probably onto something i'm just trying to get clear to the hubris issue yeah, so like, you know, one of the issues that I hear in this conversation, I'm not sure how relevant it is to your research, but it seems relevant because you guys are kind of your first person, you know, practitioners and third person researchers. And it, I think, you know, we're moving between those two perspectives quite rapidly in this conversation. And, you know, we went from talking about objective maps of biocorrelates and behavioral correlates you know, of, of being able to map that out in some sense to being concerned about spiritual materialism, which to me is a first person concern, not a third person concern. It's well, a concern how about second about person? I mean, I'm concerned sure, for people. I'm concerned for my friends and to the degree I'm a friend my, to myself. I'm concerned for myself when I get spiritually materialistic. Why? Right. Because it's a state of greed. And that's painful. If, if anybody is really feeling what that's like, it's painful. So in, in a way, it's a sort of um, it's not that highfalutin. It's really kind of simple. Being being motivated in unskillful ways is painful, and being motivated unskillfully for an idea of enlightenment is just as painful as being motivated in any other unskillful way. Right, and and being and being uh, and and not having any clear sense of what you're doing is also quite painful. You know, being deluded about what you're doing. So that's, so that's then, right. You know, these maps. That's, that's absolutely right. In fact, quite helpful. The maps can be helpful, but I think more maybe this brings it back. Oh, sorry. Uh, just quickly, maybe more important in a certain way than the third person mapping is just the second person continuity of having you know good friends. Kalyanamitta um, is really crucial for each of us to check check ourselves against. You know, when we are getting um, hubristic in a certain way, that you know. It, we can look at a third-person map and and or a third-personal description and still delude ourselves pretty well in thinking about it rationally. And if we're interacting with another human being face to face, it's hard. It's a little. It's easier for them to see, at least, and to call us if they are fiercely compassionate, which I think is another aspect of being wise. You know, not just being prosocial and loving all the time. Sometimes being wise really means being fiercely compassionate and telling people, calling people on their bullshit when they're bullshit. Yeah, yeah it's funny, I, I, just so, to bring a funny point, where, where, you know, I practice yoga also, and, you know, the yoga sort of has its own growing pains of how it fits into um, this contemporary movement of maybe mindfulness, really, because um, it's sort of an integrating of, uh, of Hindu philosophy as well. And, uh, you know, you're in this yoga class and everyone seems to be practicing all these sort of ethical sort of pro-social types of, of experiences. It seems, at least seems that way because the teacher is telling you to uh, on each other's mats. And then you, 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 
I, I leave the classroom and I and my reflection is always, what a bunch of assholes. They're still a bunch of assholes. I don't understand. So, you know, it's it's like, okay, you can you can sit on a cushion and and for for long periods of time. But it's really your behavior off the cushion that is most important, I think. You know, if you finish your meditation session and then get off your cushion and go, you know, hurt somebody, uh, whether it's mentally or physically, I, I don't see that you're really progressing much. Um, you know, even if you were able to experience some sort of deep state of samadhi or concentration, what is that doing for you as a human being for yourself and for the people around you? Um, so again, I think that the, this this materialistic um, part of this emerging field is is a critical one because we claim to be explicitly training people in compassion, for example, and then you don't see the behavior matching the the training. Um, you know, people even with self-report measures, which we use mostly in science for for compassion, for example, or mindfulness. Um, don't match up with people's meditation experience often and are not very good metrics of, of people moving through or advancing through their practice. Um, if we think things like self-awareness, self-regulation, and self-transcendence are, are, are markers of, of a flourishing human being, then you know, we should be able to see it behaviorally as well. And we don't have good objective measures for doing that. Uh, our self-report measures are people saying, yes, I am very mindful. Yes, I'm very self-compassionate. <laughs> I'm an extremely compassionate human being, but, you know, we need to be a little bit better at quantifying what people really are and how they are, because, you know, we're just, again, it's a materialistic sort of, sort of metal that people are trying to wear on their, on their chest, that they're saying, I'm a compassionate, mindful human being, and everyone, please take note. <laughs> uh, so uh, two things come to mind. The one is, and you're well aware of this, Dave, um, just that for kind of a more general audience, you know, you expect in any population there to be a normal distribution. So you'd see on any given trait, you'd see um, that there's a lot of people kind of around the middle. And then as you go toward the extremes, you're going to have less and less people. You're going to have outliers. So I have this pet theory that a lot of the people who actually get involved in meditation are probably true yoga too, are actually kind of on the lower end of the bell curve mm -hmm. in the sense that we need it, right? So maybe that's mm -hmm. why we got involved. Right. And so if you were just to take, uh, uh, you know, a a slice of people who've been meditating, maybe we shouldn't expect to see anything above and beyond the normal level of mindfulness <laughs> or ethical behavior in the population right. because right. maybe it's just like where they came from was like really tangled up and now they're a little bit less, um, right. but they haven't quite got to the way as, as uh, you know, as flourishing, say, as, as wise as most people are. That's possible. That's a, I think we should hold really... that kind of cheeky critique in the background when we're, when we're thinking about the... Well, that's a critical point in the science itself. Um, and then uh, not anywhere near right. understanding where people are coming from at baseline. Um, that's I think that's you know, that's, that's right. a huge uh, problem in the literature is understanding where people are, you know, in a trait like way. Maybe, you know, maybe this sort of maybe people's trait like dispositions towards empathy and prosocial behavior in general are indicative of where they are, where their potential is. And, you know, that's where we should be starting. Rather than right. saying, look, you know, people start, uh, you know, at self-report uh, level A and end up at self-report level B and see what mindfulness did. It changed them. You know, I think it's important that we understand people's uh, sort of 
personality characteristics at baseline and um, understand what that means. I mean, if we can relate it to karma, great. You know, <laughs> if we can say that there's some past life that sort of influenced where you are today, wonderful. But, you know, certainly science at this at this point in time is not willing to embrace the, 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 the possibility that, you know, past lives are influencing where your personality characteristics bring you out uh, into your teens. Uh, minus all the sort of environmental factors that influence how you develop. But important important aspect of the science, for sure. So a second thing um, is that, you know, there's been one of the critiques, I think, of the move that Dave and I were making and trying to start a conversation about this question, can there be a scientific investigation of enlightenment? And maybe in particular, because we Part of, the, part of our move was to say, look, you can't do that in general. You have to do it for a particular tradition. And so we picked uh, a kind of development of the Mahasi tradition, Mahasi tradition and the development of it, say, in Chinzen's um, style of teaching, Chinzen Young. You know, so one critique is to say, well, look, you guys are just arguing. You're using neuroscience to try and argue for the value of one particular traditional value conception of one particular particular kind of experience. I think a different way to take our... Uh, our empirical bent on this question in a more cheeky way is to say, well, maybe, but here's a different, a different take would be to think of it as, look, if we could get a, a kind of neurobiological uh, operationalization of certain enlightenment experiences, that would, as much as it would allow us to say, wow, all these people who, who show this neurophysiological characteristic also show really incredible behavioral manifestations just act really wisely, you could equally show that they don't. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're all over the place, that some yeah. of them act really wisely and some of them yeah. don't. So I, I mean, I think my general take is not to advance the value judgments of any particular tradition as much as to really subject all of them to the best kind of uh, critique that we can so we can see what comes out true. I'm really interested in how we have to live and I want to know and I think that bringing all of the methods to bear that we can in this kind of collaborative way, you know, with scientists and humanists is absolutely the way to go. Yeah. And I, I said, I told, uh, I quoted this in one of these Facebook posts, but Carl Sagan said, uh, science is far from a perfect instrument of knowledge. It's just the best we have. <laughs> nice. It was funny. You're thinking of Sagan. I was thinking of Richard Feynman's quote, you know, that, uh, you know, uh, nature reveals herself to us. Um, it's not uh-huh. that we're sort of going out to try to to, as you said, Jake, to impose certain kind of beliefs about how it is, but we're just kind of subjecting it to, to a real a critical look and seeing how it actually reveals itself. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for, um, for taking the time. I know we probably, in some sense, just scratched the surface of this topic. Yeah. Um, but thank you for, for your reflections and for, you know, for the work that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of scratching the surface, I think both Dave and I, are really intending just to scratch the surface because we're hoping that we're not, we don't think we could be the final word and we're really hoping for the critique to get the discussion going. So if, you know, if people have critiques, please reach us. We would love to hear them and have the continuing conversation. Yeah. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado.
This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.